We turn in God's word to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. And we here read uh, about the second commandment. The first commandment, of course, is you shall have no other gods before me. But the second commandment tells us how, not who, but how we are to worship God. And here we find in the second commandment instruction for us. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4, 5, and 6. Welcome, welcome. We welcome you in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> this is God's holy and inspired word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word and we come to the teaching of your word, that has been confessed faithfully by your faithful church throughout uh, church history, we ask, Father, that you would illumine our minds and kindle our hearts to love you and to serve you and to live, Father, in subjection to you, Father, uh, without violating our consciences, and Father, not disturbing the peace and the purity of your church either. Father, grant us your grace, grant us wisdom, uh, Father, uh, to be able to explain, help me to explain, uh, Father, these truths and help your people to receive them as from your word. We pray, Lord, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the burden that the Belgic Confession in Article 32 takes up is uh, simple and yet complex. Um, at times, it, it has proven to be complex, and yet it is simple. And the burden is simply this, how to assess, how to understand, how to filter through and weigh various practices in the church. So how to assess various practices in the church? Well, we're given uh, two points. First of all, Scripture commands us to do certain things, and we ought to follow Scripture by biblical precept or by biblical practice. But secondly, uh, uh, there are many things that are not found explicitly in Scripture, right? And we can think of a number of items, like, for instance, when to have worship on the Lord's Day. Do we start at 10, 11, 9, right, 8? So there is a, a, a kind of circumstantial there's a kind of church order, a governance, though not explicitly scriptural, should never be raised to the level of the Bible, but it should not be rejected as mere pragmatic uh, practice. You know, this is lawlessness, right? This is uh, devolving into individualism, right? No, the church is to order its life, its worship, its governance, um, its practices in a certain way, in a particular way that it believes is right from God's word, that doesn't go against God's word. 
But those practices, that church order, and I have here a copy of our uh, URC church order. It's very simple. It's, you can read it in about an hour's time. That should never be raised to the level of the Bible. All right. But on the other hand, the other extreme is to reject it as a mere pragmatic practice. All right. And that's to devolve into the lawlessness of individualism. So first of all, uh, two simple points. First of all, a warning to leaders of the church, to us who have been called by God to lead the church, ministers, elders, and deacons, right? What are we told here we are to do and not do in Article 32? Uh, although we have to uh, set up an order that might be useful and good to govern the church, right? They ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only master, has ordained for us. We are, yes, inevitably going to develop practices, rituals, ordinances for maintaining order and governing God's people. And yet the leaders of a church must always be attentive that they not depart from God's word. And this, of course, is the tendency for any leader, for me as a minister, for elders, for deacons, for any who are called by God to lead the church. The tendency always is to depart from God's word. And this, of course, tells us, it reminds us of a distinction we have made in the past, that the authority of ministers and elders is not magisterial, but ministerial. It is a ministerial authority given by God that calls us as leaders to serve God and serve his people by centering on what God's word teaches, how to live and what to believe. The authority of leaders is circumscribed and limited, right? This is biblical. This is what's called ministerial authority. Magisterial authority is that authority that man appropriates or aggregates for himself that goes beyond God's word. And it establishes the word of man as law in the church. And here, obviously, you can see that this, this kind of magisterial authority is rife with abuse, where leaders domineer and lord it over God's people. Here, in this sense, authority is deemed to be unlimited. Now, we know man really does never have unlimited authority. Only God does. But man seeks to have an authority that is beyond limit, right? Not circumscribed, not limited by God's word, all right? And this, this kind of what we call magisterial authority is unbiblical. So back to the main point here, the warning that God gives, that the Belgic gives to leaders of the church. In the church's corporate worship, in her life, in her practices, in her order and governance, the church must stick to what God has revealed by precept and by practice. It must be, in other words, regulated by the word of God. And here in Exodus 20, you might wonder, well, why did we read Exodus 20? It's so odd. The second commandment gives us what has been called by theologians for millennia, the regulative principle of worship, right? In the first commandment, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. 
You are to worship Yahweh alone. Who is Yahweh? The God who made the heavens and the earth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who has saved you, who brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The God who has brought you from the house of slavery to rescue you, to bring you into land, the land of Canaan, the land of freedom, the life of light and of life in Jesus Christ. Okay, very well. This is who we are to worship. But then the tendency might, say, might be, right? Well, we, we ought to worship God in our way, in the way that we think is right, in the way perhaps that the nations worship their gods, right? The, the problem with the nations is maybe that they don't worship Yahweh, but apart from that, they have everything else right. This would be the tendency of the Israelite to, to say perhaps, well, we, we ought to make images. We ought to make likenesses of Yahweh. We want to worship Yahweh. We're not going to worship Baal or Asherah. We want to worship Yahweh. Let's make an image. Let's draw something. Let's fashion a statue, and that will be a representation of Yahweh. And God says, no, you can't do that. Yes, you are to worship God alone, but you are to worship God in the way he has commanded, which is to say we are to regulate our worship, our lives all that we are, all that we have, according to God's word. If you look over at Deuteronomy chapter 4, this command is repeated. This command is repeated. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then also verse 15 through 18, verses 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you. And then verse 15, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, right? The, the, the commandment of God is repeated here, right? You didn't see a form at Horeb. God could have easily said to the people, here's what I look like, draw this, worship me through this. But he doesn't. And so he says, take care, take care, lest you worship me in the wrong way. The Heidelberg Catechism picks up on this in questions 96, 97, and 98. If you look there on page 890, Catechism says, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way that has been commanded in God's word. There are two concerns in the second commandment. There are two concerns here. As the catechism explains the second commandment, representation and worship. Because representation always leads to worship. So you cannot represent God with an image, with, a, with a, a, a graphic pictorial likeness. And of course, you cannot worship him in that way. And then verse, uh, uh, question 97. May we then not make any image at all? 
God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. And then, uh, as, as it were, preempting perhaps an objection, uh, 98, question 98, but may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in the churches? And the catechism responds, no, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. We are to worship God in the way he has commanded, not through images, not through representations or graphic pictorial likenesses of God. We don't know what God looks like. God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. And of course, Jesus is a man, but he's God. And so the second commandment applies even to images of God. We are not to portray God. We are not to worship God, the one true living God, in any way he has not commanded, in a way that he has prohibited. And of course, this is what the Belgian Confession then takes up uh, in paragraphs two and three. We reject, we receive, we prohibit, we prescribe right? What is prohibited? What is rejected? All human inventions and laws that could be introduced and found in worship that would bind and compel the conscience. Of course, we understand that the human conscience has to be informed and illuminated by God's word. The the human conscience is not autonomous. It's not a law unto itself. And of course, the Belgian Confession here has in mind the, the context of the Reformation, when in Rome, there was just a, 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 a plethora of practices and customs and rituals that Rome insisted upon. That if you were to be faithful, a faithful parishioner, you had to do. And yet, these commands, these teachings, these practices of man, the, the traditions of men, went beyond the word of God. And of course, when you... Go beyond God's word, you burden God's people and you burden their consciences and you burden their souls so that it is no coincidence that in the Roman context, in the Reformation era, people did not have assurance of salvation, right? Have they done enough? Have they followed all the customs, all the laws, all the traditions to a T? And even to this day, if you were to speak with a Roman Catholic person, right? And, and say, and ask them, do you, do you have assurance of your salvation? That you're forgiven, that you have the pardon of God? They will say to you as a faithful Romanist, no, I don't. And no, I cannot have assurance. It is no coincidence either that in evangelicalism, there are a, a, a bevy of practices that are similar to Romanism, all right? Evangelicalism, if you, if you want to understand evangelicalism, it's like Roman Catholicism with a more sophisticated twist, with perhaps a more um, trendy facade. Um, in, many, in many churches, and I'll just give you one example of this, um, oftentimes worship services are canceled, right? Because, you know, Sunday falls on Christmas or, or Christmas falls on Sunday, or, or something like that. Who, who has given the church authority to cancel worship, right? This is a, 
a, a practice that goes beyond the word of God, that burdens God's people. God's people want to worship God. God's people want to be gathered uh, by the call of God to worship his holy name. And yet, uh, worship services are canceled. All right? Uh, what goes beyond God's word in the essentials, in worship, in the life and practice of the church is prohibited. And what is permitted, what is prescribed, what is to be admitted? Uh, paragraph 3 of Bajuk 32 tells us. So we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. What is admitted, in other words, is God's word and practices based on God's word, which nourish uh, God's people, which preserve the unity of God's people and keep all men in obedience to God. Uh, traditions of men that are raised to the level of the word of God must be rejected as unnecessary or as dangerous. Certainly not God's word. And they must be, if they are to be kept, and all, all churches have traditions. Pentecostal churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches. If they are to be kept, if you are to have traditions, which is inevitable, they are to be relativized as secondary or as a tertiary practice of the church. God's worship, God's people, in the main in the essentials, must be regulated by God's word alone. We are to give to God what God wants, not what we want, but what he has commanded in the way in which he has commanded, either by biblical precept or by biblical practice. And then paragraph four tells us why church discipline and excommunication is given. It's given in order to be applied to those who would depart from God's word. Uh, by their doctrine or by their life, by what they believe or what they practice. To that end, excommunication, Belgic 32 says, with all that it involves, right, church discipline, according to the word of God, is required, is required. Um, and this is what we find, is it not, that when you don't have this this mark of the church, right? There are three marks of the church, the pure preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. When you don't discipline those who, who go astray in how they're living and what they're believing, right? Uh, you're not going to have a church for very long. If you don't police the standards, you'll have no standards and you'll have no church. And this is actually a true principle everywhere. Everywhere in the world, this is a true principle, right? Businesses that don't, you know, they don't care if people shoplift. They won't be around for very long. We just heard news of CVS or one of these pharmacies closing 900 stores around the nation, right? If you allow vagrancy, if you allow open drug use in society, violence and, and, and whatever else, right? We can even say if you allow open borders, Right? And, and the open flaunting of standards, you're not going to have a country for very long. And what about the church? Right? What's true in the world, that, that general principle is absolutely true in the church. You won't have a church for very long if people flaunt the standard of God's word, what they are to believe and how they are to live. This is, of course, then, first of all, a warning to the leaders of the church. 
Uh, but secondly, secondly, we want to consider the fact that although we are to base what we do, our life, upon the word of God, right? There is a necessity of governance and order and of living in peace in the church. And here we find in that very first phrase of Belgic 32, something important for us to consider. We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, it is useful and good to set up a certain order to maintain the church. All right. Establishing a certain order in the church is useful and beneficial, and it is a means to a biblical end, right? That there would be order in the church of Christ. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33, verse 14, tells us that God is not a God of confusion. God, rather, is a God of peace and mandates things to be done decently and in good order. And that is one of the reasons, beloved, why as a URC church, we have bound ourselves voluntarily to follow the church order, right? And you can find it online. It's a public document, right? There's no secret here. There's nothing obscure. <clears throat> the URC church order is very limited. Like I said, you could read it profitably in about an hour, all right? It has 67 articles, 66 articles, excuse me. And it has uh, eight appendices and uh, uh, one page that is the foundations of principles of church order, of church governance, all right? It's limited and to the point, it covers the major aspects of church life. It doesn't specify everything in detail, but it covers the general practices of a church. Now, we may want the church order to be more detailed. We, we may want it to specify certain things a little bit more, but oftentimes we find that perhaps it doesn't. And in those cases where we need more guidance, we need wisdom, we go to the churches. We go to our classes, the regional body of churches that's meeting actually this upcoming week. And we ask for wisdom and we inquire about precedent. All right. But the point here I want you to see is that when you read the church order, and I want you to read it, we are a URC church, you'll see that it is consistent with Scripture. It is not against Scripture. It, it Obviously, uh, you can't quote Scripture chapter and verse to get to this church order, but it follows Scripture with the broad uh, biblical principles and precepts and practices in Scripture. And yet within the church order, we find that there is biblical principle and yet broad freedom for the churches to pursue what it believes to be right and proper. All right. There is a certain order that is necessary to be set up within that certain order. We have answered certain questions a certain way. There is obviously uh, certain things that are fixed. Certain things are more free for us to pursue. And each church as long as they pursue that which is fixed, that which is essential, have freedom to answer the questions that churches have to answer in their particular way. I'll give you an example, all right? From church order, <clears throat> article 37. Church order, article 37, talks about, 
corporate worship. And it says, the consistory, that is the elders and minister, the consistory shall call the congregation together for corporate worship twice on each Lord's Day. That is fixed. We have agreed to do this as a URC church. But then it goes on to say what it may do. Special services may be called in observance of Christmas Day, Good Friday, Ascension Day, a day of prayer, the National Thanksgiving Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, as well as in times of great distress or blessing. Attention should also be given to Easter and Pentecost on their respective Lord's Days. All right. There are things that are essential. There are things that we are free as a particular church to pursue. In other words, we must call two services on the Lord's Day, but we may, there's freedom, we may call a service on Ascension uh, Day, which always falls on a Thursday, uh, or on Christmas Day, and so on and so forth, all right? What is essential to a church's worship is what is called the elements of worship, the elements of worship, and what is not essential what is not biblically prescribed is called the circumstances of worship, right? And here we find a number of uh, examples. Perhaps you might think of some yourself, all right? Um, practices that are not uh, biblically prescribed, they might be good, they might be a good idea, they might be useful and beneficial. Right? But they are not elements of worship. Calvin, in his time, uh, talked about kneeling, the practice of kneeling down in worship. In uh, book four, uh, chapter 10, you know, articles, sections 30, 31, 32. Um, he says, is this, can a church do this? Can they kneel in worship? Of course, you know, it's found in scripture. All right. Other churches kneel. But perhaps there are some churches that don't practice kneeling in worship, right? But what you cannot do is then say, well, other churches do it. Our church doesn't do it. We are, by that degree, less faithful to God, all right? No, Calvin, in, in quoting Titus and Timothy and other New Testament passages that talk about the peace and the purity of the church, right, says you have to submit to the practices of that particular church you're joining and are a member. You must submit, of course, to the doctrine, but to her governance and to her practice. Because if you don't, you see, there's an endless list of what ifs, of what about this and what about that, right? And and some of you have asked me, um, good for you, uh, in times past about some of these practices that perhaps you're familiar with, right? Um, In some of the URC churches, ministers wear robes, right? And there's a biblical conviction behind a minister wearing a robe. In this particular church, we don't. Some of you have asked about women uh, covering their head in worship, right? What, what, What should be done about that? Does the Bible teach that? Or how about weekly communion? In some churches, only men vote or heads of households. We don't practice that here, right? In some churches, in some URC churches, hands are raised in worship. 
Uh, in some URC churches, there's a certain style, a certain kind of biblical preaching that might not be what's found here, right? And of course, the internet provides just so much fodder to divide over, right? You might read, you might hear, you might have seen, you might have seen a video, a podcast or whatever, and you say, well, that, you're convinced, that's the way to do it, right? We have to do it that way. And so what is the tendency is to say, now we have to force fit the church to fit that thing. Well, if that's not the practices in this particular church, what are you to do, right? What are you to do? What you may not do is upend the practice of the particular church that you are joining and are a member of. We are to seek the peace of the church. What Calvin says is this, what, for what a seedbed of quarrels will confusion in such matters be if everyone is allowed at pleasure to alter what pertains to common order. All will not be satisfied with the same course if matters placed, as it were, on debatable ground are left to the determination of individuals. The effect of this procedure is that in all these matters, each retains his freedom and yet at the same time voluntarily subjects it to a kind of necessity in so far as the decency of which we have spoken or charity demands. Right? What that means is that the church has to function a certain way. And the church, this church, Grace Reformed Church, has answered certain questions in a particular way, right? We can't open the door to individualism, to every Christian's personal eccentricities. If you are convinced, let me, let me go to the point here for us, for our purposes. If you are convinced of a certain practice, of a certain doctrine, right, and, and think, well, it's not being practiced here at Grace Reformed Church, but it should be. Come talk to the elders. Come talk to me, Andre, Alfredo, myself. All right? And come talk to us with an open mind. Open yourself to be corrected. Open yourself to be persuaded from Scripture and its implications. All right? So practices that do not go against Scripture but that in the estimation of elders are good and proper and derived from scripture. Yes, they're not scripture. We don't ever raise them to the point of scripture, but we also neither reject them as anti-biblical. And we can't say, we can't be biblicists and say, well, it's not in the Bible, right? No, those practices that in the estimation of a consistory, the elders and a minister are good, proper, and derived from scripture, must be followed, all right? So we have a warning to church leaders to not bind the consciences of God's people, but we have also a welcome, an invitation to the congregation to follow that which is biblical in its practice and in its governance of the church. Amen, let's pray. <clears throat> our Father and our God, help us to submit to you, submit to your word, submit to your teaching. Father, in your word, help us all, Father, with tender hearts to follow you and to live in peace, Father, with you and your body, the church. Father, hear us for these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.